in your brain, I see it like there's almost several different colours of jelly beans and these are your pleasure chemicals like your dopamine, your serotonin, your oxytocin, your norepinephrine. There's all of these different pleasure chemicals you have and every time you do something good, it shakes your jelly bean jar. Jelly beans trickle all through your body, make you feel good and it's incredibly important for our resilience and when I talk about resilience, like your, your locus of control, when you know that there are things that are really simple that you can do that can make you feel good, one, it helps you relieve stress and inflammation, which causes disease. But it also means that this world just feels fun and meaningful, like, you know, and you've got a hunger to be part of it. And that helps us determine a strong locus of a control, a sense that we are responsible for our own happiness and we can do things very simply and easily to be able to find meaning and purpose in this world. So we don't feel a little bit like a plastic bag in the wind. We feel like we're the one directing. We're kind of the captain at the front of the ship. <laughs> that is psychologist Tani Schultz. And this is episode 261 of the Osher Ginsberg Podcast. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. Hello and welcome to the Osher Ginsberg Podcast. I'm Osher Ginsberg. This is my podcast, episode 261 of the show with psychologist Tani Schultz. More about Tani in a moment. This is a good one. I'm glad you're here. If you're new to this podcast, what is this show? This podcast is a conversation that you get to be a part of. It's a conversation designed to hopefully help you make today 
a little bit better than yesterday. Now, sometimes this conversation will be with a name that you know. Sometimes it will be with a name that you don't know. But I guarantee no matter what, you are going to hear something today that you need to hear. You'll hear something in the next hour and a bit that will help make today a little bit better than yesterday because that's the conversations I like to have, all right? I like to, when I speak with someone, I'm like to go, what can I learn from you? What can I get out of what you know in your head, into my head to help my day and the day of the people I love a better day? And then I get to share that conversation with you. And that's what I'm here to do. Who am I? I am TV host, podcaster, author, husband, stepfather, bicycle rider, guitar player, photographer, um, foam roller user, kettlebell swinger, social media usage curber, uh, pressure cooker cooker, and currently iPhone software updater, Osher Ginsberg. And this is my show. Each Monday, uh, we make this show, me and Andy and Rachel make this show, and we've done it for over five years now. So I'm glad you're here. There's plenty of other episodes to check out if you're brand new. Um, I hope you're well wherever you are. I hope that you're doing what you need to do to deal with what you've got. I hope that you're identifying the things in your life that don't serve you and finding ways to either remove those things, work around those things, or change the way you feel about those things. That's about our options, isn't it? It's pretty much. The third one's the most powerful because you don't have to touch anything. You just decide in your head how you feel about it. That's the magic of life. Uh, Speaking of which, I wanted to check in with you a bit. I've got a couple of days of zeros in my book and I'm pretty grateful for that. I won't lie. If you're new to the show, um, hi, I'm Osher. Uh, I wrote a book. It's called Back After the Break. I wrote a book about... um, getting quite sick and ending up having psychosis and then being on a lot of drugs, medication, and then gratefully doing a lot of work with a lot of great, very smart people and getting a bit better. And this is me talking every week about, hey, this is what life is. But yeah, one of the things that I do every morning is I write 20 things I'm grateful for every morning and I give myself a score. I, I like to keep a note of my anxiety uh, just to kind of have reflect on what's working, what's not working, and to indeed remember that it won't always be either way. Uh, so... I wake up in the morning, I write down three scores when I'm having my coffee and then I write down, I write, uh, what's my anxiety like now sitting there with my book? What was it like the moment I opened my eyes? What was it like three minutes later? And I use those three moments to measure because for me, some days it, it jolts me out of bed like a bucket of iced water. Some days it's it's not there the moment I realize I'm no longer sleeping, but either a few seconds or a few minutes later, before I've gotten out of bed, it'll creep under the covers with me and just be all horrid and spiky. And some days it just hangs around like a knot in your back that you cannot get out no matter how many times you roll around on the massage ball. And um, yeah, so the last few days it's been all zeros, which is nice because if you listen a few weeks ago, it wasn't that. (laughs) And it's going to be nice when those numbers go back up because they will go back up because life is peaks and troughs. Um, It'll be nice when those numbers go back up to look back to these days right now and see what I'm doing right now that I wasn't doing, that I'm not doing when I'm back up again and have faith that I know what to do in order to bring those numbers back down and indeed to know that they can come back down, that the state of anxiety isn't a permanent state. I think that's the most important thing, I think, is to have a tangible, like, yes, that's my handwriting. Yes, I wrote it 10 days ago and on that day I had all zeros. Okay, so it is possible my brain can feel that. It's not feeling it today. Okay, what can I do about how I'm feeling today? How can I get the numbers a little lower? Um, Because when you're in it, it feels like it's going to be forever. And that's the issue, isn't it, really? I do have to say um, I'm really beyond humbled and beyond grateful to 
the let's say the entire city of Melbourne and the entire city of Brisbane. The live shows that I'm doing in those two cities are selling so, so very well. We're almost all the way done in Melbourne. If you're not already, by the time you hear this, we're almost all the way done. Um, the first show sold completely out and the second show there's I think they might have put a few extra, they've changed some rows around or whatever, there's a few extra seats. Uh, December 13th, if you haven't already got tickets, if there are any left, that'll be the day. And Brisbane, February the 8th, that is a big room, Brisbane. That's over 500 people fit into that room at the Powerhouse Theatre and we are almost all the way full there too, which is just magnificent. Um, that is so cool. Tickets for both shows are at osherginsburg.com. Uh, I cannot wait to see you there. There'll be books available at both shows. I'll be seeing seeing people and signing things at both shows and Mike Mills, Toe Hider will be at both shows. So it's the full box and dice. It's the full thing and I can't wait to see you there. Um, it is the live show based upon the book that I wrote, a book that you can get if you want to get it. Big thanks to all the Podsy picks this week. What's a Podsy? P-O-D-S-I-E. It's a selfie, but not really. It's what are you looking at the, when you're listening to my voice right now. So you're probably listening to this on a phone except for the two people listening on browsers. Yeah, same IP addresses as they have been for years. There's two people. One's a, a lab clerk because they're not allowed to bring their personal device into work. So they use the internet device on their desk and they sit there and, you know, do tests on pathogens under a under a protection hood that sucks the air away. It's like it's like the thing you have in your kitchen, but is designed to suck pack pathogens away from your face. Um, so there's one person that listens there, and there's another person that listens at work. Um, so yeah, take take a photo of what you're looking at right now, and uh, send it to me. You can get me on Instagram. That's just probably the best way is Instagram, or you can email send us your email at gmail.com. Some cracking cracking podsies this week carly sent one carly out for a run listening to the podcast through the suburbs of i believe brisbane with kangaroos hopping across the street in front of you does get more australian than that uh holly uh out for a walk which is really lovely with me and susan david um which is really nice and matthew doing some bench presses i love all three, I love that this podcast is a part of your exercise routine because that is what I do. I listen to podcasts when I'm working out. I enjoy the brain workout as much as the lifting workout. I love listening to particularly nerdy science stuff. <laughs> I don't know why. That's what I like. I like, you know, try to contemplate physics <laughs> when, I'm, when I'm lifting things dealing with gravity. I don't know. Maybe that's it. I don't know. Uh, speaking of working out, I wanted to share something with you. Uh, that is a, a real life example of what I talk about on the show a lot. Uh, that is, you know, self-care. When you make it a habit, it becomes a lot easier and then your life uh, starts to improve because you have a habit of self-care rather than a deliberate action or choice of self-care every day. It's just a thing that you do, a habitual uh, routine of self-care that then starts to bring extraordinary value into your life. Um, yeah, because I do talk about this a lot. One of the people I work with uh, asked me, oh, hey, how's your, how, how are you going today? I said, I'm actually good. I'm good, you know, because um, I was good so far. It was early in the day. I said, oh, even though, you know, it's early, um, I've gotten up with enough time to work out. So I, I felt really good. And she, and she said something along the lines of like, oh, I wish I worked out. And I just, you know, started, you know, we started having a conversation about what I learned from Susan David. Um, the woman I just mentioned, on um, want to goals versus need to goals. Um, like, oh, I wish I worked out. That's like a, oh, I need to work out. It's like, well, what if you, what if, what if you want to? You know, how, how do you get a want to goal? And what I learned from Susan is that want to goals are easier to get to because they're aligned with the definition of yourself. And and I said to my my colleague, I said to her, all you have to do is you just say to yourself, 
I'm the kind of woman that does squats every morning rather than I have to work out. No, I'm the kind of woman that does squats every morning. And then you do 10 squats because you're the kind of woman that does squats every morning. And for example, you could also be the kind of woman that does two more squats every morning. And she kind of looked up and went, I get that. And the next day she came and found me at work and said, I did 10 squats today because she's the kind of woman that does squats every morning. And that was a few days back. And she told me yesterday, she's up to 20. It's, it sounds simplistic, but it's just a headset, a head shift, a mindset shift of how you approach the task at hand, particularly the self-care task, something around physicality, which stimulates those magical chemicals. I talk about a lot, dopamine, serotonin, norepinephrine. I, I do this every day. I, I write in that book I talked about just before. I write about it every morning. I write every morning. I write it down every day. I write like write outs like I'm in trouble at school. I'm the kind of man who, and then boom, 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 I'll fill in the blanks. One of the things I write is that I'm the kind of man who does squats every morning when I'm making my coffee. And why this helps, and I've found this to be helpful, quite helpful, is because when I hesitate, because it's early and I haven't had coffee yet, when I want to not do it, I remind myself oh, I don't want to do these squats, but I'm the kind of guy that does squats every morning. And then I just do them. And then when they're done, I remind myself, of course they're done. Because I'm the kind of guy that does squats every morning. That's the reward I get. The habit loop closing. Uh, The habit loop is something that um, an author called Charles Duhigg talks about. Trigger, response, reward. Trigger, response, reward. It's your habit loop. Making the coffee, that's my trigger. The squats are the response. The reward is the feeling of reinforcing that sense of self that I'm the kind of man who does squats every morning. And then there's also the reward of all the oxytocin and everything just flooding through my body that makes me look forward to, oh yeah, I'll get to do squats again tomorrow. I do, I'm up to 50 at the moment. I was up to 60, but I started pulling it back because all the coffee had been ground, the kettle had boiled, the machine's warm. I'm like, oh, I'm still doing squats. It's good. It's nice. but So I, it's like I told you the other week, it started with two. <laughs> Uh, The key is to start with the smallest version of whatever it is that you're doing every day. And eventually, when I do it every day, I become the man who does whatever it is that I do every day. Does that make sense? It's all about building systems. That's what, well, that's what works for me. Uh, And if I leave it up to chance, I should really probably do some squats. The ingrained reluctance just kicks in. Fuck it, I won't. So an example, an example would be, um, I don't put my phone down when my wife comes in the house because we've had fights about it, though that has happened. (laughs) I put my phone down when she comes in the house because I want to be the kind of man that meaningfully reconnects with my wife when I see her at the end of the day. The trigger is me or her coming into the house. The response is me putting my phone down. The reward is the emotional connection with a real human, not a tweet to a stranger on social media that will ultimately be inconsequential to my life. Okay? Does that make sense? So maybe have a think about what kind of person you'd like to be or you'd like to see yourself as and make your definition out of that. Um, Could be I'm the kind of person that's five minutes early. I'm the kind of person that gets eight hours sleep. I'm the kind of person who makes good choices about food. Just... You make the definition, then you make the smallest possible version of that definition that you can complete, and then you just do it every day. Soon enough, it becomes automatic. Then it becomes a part of your identity. Then you start reaping the rewards of a life where you are early, 
well-rested and properly nourished. It sounds simple because it, it is. And the more automated you make it, the more powerful it is. Because um, you don't have to think about it. It's just the thing that you do because uh, like a really simple way is like when, when I made the choice to only eat plants, it just became super easy to say no to eating meat or dairy or, or eggs. It's like, no, I'm, just, I'm the kind of person that doesn't eat that. That was it. It was really easy because it was now a part of who I, how I define myself. Um, and it's the same with not drinking. It was, it's really easy to not drink because I'm the, I'm the kind of person that doesn't drink. I just don't drink. And that's it. It's really, it's, it, it, once, once you, it's a simple trick in the head um, that works for me and I, I hope it works for you. Anyway, let me know how you go. I do, I do love exploring this stuff. I really do because it's all a part of how I manage my own self-care and my life off of meds, which is something that led me to speak with my guest today. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. My guest today is psychologist Tani Schultz. Tani is a highly experienced psychologist with a background in mental health, trauma, substance use, complex comorbid, complex comorbid presentations, and corporate psychology. For the past four years, Tani has specialized in critical incident response and has worked with various people involved in and affected by such things as the tragic passing of cricketer Philip Hughes, the Sydney Lint Cafe siege, several royal commissions, and um, the Nepal Earthquakes Rescue Mission. She's essentially like, you know, when something, you know, bad happens and then all the ambulances and fire trucks arrive and all these highly trained professional men and women jump out, um, she's like the mental health paramedic, all right? But instead of a medical kit full of butterfly stitches and IV drips, she has her words and her knowledge to assist with the mental trauma of a situation that has great physical trauma and possible danger. Does that make sense? 
Now, this, speaking of trauma, this conversation talks a lot about trauma and the effects of trauma. Part of that chat takes us to a pretty grim place about half an hour into the conversation. We talk about a case that she worked on that involved a child or an adult person who had been a, an, an extra, extraordinary trauma when she was a child. Um, if you want to skip ahead a couple of minutes, uh, I won't be upset at all. You'll re-emerge safely on the other side. Um, if this conversation does bring up anything for you, please do call Lifeline on 13 11 14. I know you're going to get a lot out of this conversation. I most certainly did. Enjoy this wonderful chat um, that we recorded when Audrey and I were still living in that hotel in Sydney. So we're by the harbour, Sydney Harbour, uh, with the extraordinarily wonderful Tani Schultz. I'm grateful that um, you and I are here today, Tani. We we got connected through Kath Cashel. We did, yeah. Who is, uh, of all the podcasts I've done, she's one that, uh, I think it's pretty much her and Todd Sampson, but her story is the one that absolutely floors people. And she acknowledges 100% that it's it's not a thing that she was able to do by herself. And when I asked her, it's like, well, you know, I really love having you on the show. Is there anyone you think I should get on the show? Boom, you were the first person. Oh, is uh, that, that's very kind of her. She talks yeah. about it. But you are, you're clearly a, a, a superstar in your in your field. Thank you. Uh, well, <laughs> you know, you, I'm, I'm, and I'm... I'm kind of fascinated to know how how you got into it. You want to you want to swig of your coffee? That's a pretty good <laughs> one. You, you got a. Uh, we're, we're very Sydney right now. We're yeah. uh, we're uh, me and the family are living in a we're living in a hotel because we don't have any bathrooms in our house. Uh, we needed somewhere we could keep the dog, so we're in a hotel with a dog, and they've served us up a what is it? An, an arm- almond piccolo. An almond milk piccolo. Yep, it's delicious. <laughs> I'm sure it is. I'm sure it is, but we are we are in this extraordinary place of privilege right now. <laughs> yes, we it's, are. <laughs> it's, it's pretty special. Most of the country drinks uh, drinks instant. Yes, <laughs> and here we are yep. drinking almond pickles. Very nice. Oh, <laughs> uh, I'm glad. How how old were you when you thought you know what psychology? That's what I'll do. I was 14 actually. Yeah. What happened at 14? <laughs> and it's one of those ones I didn't actually realise it was happening at 14, but I about oh eight years ago now was going unpacking some boxes because I've lived in over 20 houses. I'm constantly unpacking and packing and this time I was unpacking a box and found a diary and I'd written in the diary and this was at 14 that I wanted to be a psychologist. So I know that it was at 14 I wanted to be a psychologist but I'd done year seven and year eight with psychology in it um, and was absolutely fascinated by the brain uh, like the science component and the law component of, of psychology um, and that was it. It just, I was immersed and I couldn't get enough of it. And so from there, chose it as a subject in year nine, year 10, year 11, year 12, and never looked back. I think, yeah, I'll do this till the day I die if my brain keeps ticking. <laughs> What's, what school gave you that? I'm, I didn't get that. I got, <laughs> I got history, science, maths, PE, that's it. Maybe um, music. I had, um, it was born high school actually, it was in Melbourne. Um, it's about well, maybe 20 minutes out from the city. Uh, so, yeah, it's an incredible school. Really enjoyed it. Uh, but we had uh, just electives, I guess. It was just your standard electives. Yeah. What, do you study in, <laughs> in, what do you study in psychology when you're, in, you know, when you're 12? <laughs> uh, well, well, this was like, so this was 14 going into 15. It was all of the really base, the basis of 
psychology. So Skinner's, like you're looking at classical conditioning and operant conditioning and like who were the four frontiers in psychology and then moving into positive psychology, looking at um, your value system and neural pathways in the brain and axon terminals and dendrites and all of these different parts. So looking at it from um, like the practical application of psychology all the way down into the, the micro neurons of the brain and how that works. Yeah. I'm, I am so fascinated that Someone somewhere who's developing a school curri- curriculum went, you know what, it's going to be valuable to teach teenagers how their brains work and why they make up their minds the way they make up their minds. Because if I'd have known that, my path would have been very different. Yeah. I've, I, actually, in reflection right now with you acknowledging that, I am. I'm incredibly lucky. It paved the rest of my life journey, really. Yeah. How did it affect you? I mean, I guess you don't know because you never knew any other way, but... How did it affect you dealing with the struggles of being a teenager with suddenly waking up and your body's 10% bigger than it was in one place and smaller in another and suddenly all you want to do is this thing over there when a week ago you didn't care about it? And you actually got growing pains. I remember kids actually being in tears because their bones were growing and they could feel their bones growing and they had to go home for growing pains. It probably wasn't as immersive at that stage psychology to actually teach you much about what's going on in your brain to help guide me at that point. It was more so so the fascination of the the thinkers before, like the philosophers before in psychology and understanding more from a biological perspective about psychology. I think um, it was more so when I got to uni that I was... By then I was like, oh my gosh, this is like idea porn to me. <laughs> like it was just it was just phenomenal. That's when you started to really start to carve out the direction where you wanted to specialize. Um, yeah, looking at it really from kind of getting your hands dirty in psychology. Yeah. Yeah. So but by the time you got to uni, that might have been most people's first forays into those concepts. But you've got four years or five years mm. up your sleeve. That's yeah. quite a head of steam to have. Yes. Going into that. And I, um, lots of people drop out of uni, actually. Um, you know, you might have about two to 300 people initially that turn up to psychology and across, because it's an undergrad of three years, people drop down. You might only have 40 people left at the, the end of the th- three years. So I think, one, I'm not necessarily a particularly clever person, but I've got a huge amount of grit and determination about something that I really enjoy. Um, so, yeah, having those four years of laid of something that I knew I was fascinated in um, certainly helped me have a really strong foundation that I knew I wanted to do this. Whereas, yeah, I think for some people that just started the degree, they were just like, what is this? <laughs> and so, yeah, heaps of people dropped out. What's something that you – what's a concept that you learned in in the high school portion that you still use every day? Uh, probably the like more so around kind of operant and classical conditioning looking at um, – So let's, let's talk about that because there might be the first time people have heard those words. So even looking at something as simple as that the brain is most addicted to something that's variable ratio and that's what basically poker machines are. It's variable ratio. It's like you lose, you lose, you lose, you win. You lose, you lose, you lose, you lose, you lose, you lose, you win. And you, we kind of fool ourselves into thinking, well, I've lost this many times. A win is, around, is just around the corner. I kind of almost deserve the win. If I just hang in there, I'll get the win. Um, and unfortunately, unhealthy relationships and many other things, um, we, we've really fall um, victim and really vulnerable to that variable ratio type scheme. We, it's addictive. We get drawn into it and we feel like we've done something right. We've cracked the code. We've found the secret. We're lucky when we've won. Um, but really, it's kind of, it's already stacked up against us. Um, and it can be, yeah, it can be life destroying, but highly addictive. Uh, fascinating that that pattern. Let me just make sure I've got you right. So 
you lose, you lose, you lose, you lose, you win. You lose, you lose, you lose, you lose, you lose, you lose, you win. Both of those things, if we're talking about a poker machine, they are outcomes that have been generated by a completely uh, stacked algorithm against you as the player. But we have a fallacy where we decide, ah, I did something. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm the one that did that. So therefore, I know how to do it again. Mm. So even though it's uh, in those two things that I just said, one in six or then a one in eight, or it could be one in 15, Mm -hmm. you still take responsibility for that win thinking, oh, if I just do that thing again, I'll get it again. But that's a total trap. Yeah. And, and that, cer- that certainly happens in relationships. Yep. I can see how that happens. It certainly happened to me in gambling. Goodness me, it happened in my drinking. You know, maybe one in 20 times I'd have a fun night. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. But it, you're like, God, that was worth it, wasn't it? Like, by geez, that was the best night of my life. So I better go back and try to get that again, like chasing the dragon. <laughs> yeah. And why do our brains do that? <laughs> I know. It's, it's tough, isn't it? Well, I guess uh, the, main, um, the main pleasure chemical that we can um, blame for or, um, or contribute that to is dopamine. It's a pleasure chemical in our reward system that makes us, um, yeah, feel incredibly good <laughs> when we do it, whether it's having sex or getting a cuddle or taking cocaine. Like, they, you know, it's all this reward system that's reinforcing. And we've got a memory system as well that will remind us these are the stuff that felt really good go do that again and so the more dopamine's released the louder that scream is go do that again go do that again um, so it may not necessarily be healthy for us or it may not necessarily be functional for us but it made it like it, it absolutely released the floodgates of dopamine so um, our memory system is hardwired for us to move towards things that make us feel good and avoid things that don't make us feel good so regardless of whether it's healthy or not um, we'll go we'll go towards it <laughs> we are a fascinating animal we are. that we <laughs> We crave things and, and, and like those, the reason to chase dopamine has got to have an evolutionary reason to be there. Yes, that, absolutely. And, and I'm, I'm assuming that initial amounts of pleasure and dopamine release came from community bonding and being close to another person because if I was close to another person and if I was close with many people, I had a better chance of survival. Yes. It's got to have something to do absolutely. with that. Absolutely. And when we think about, I mean, we're pretty phenomenal as human beings that we've been able to develop you know, all of these new things like technologies and um, substances and entertainment um, that really do play with that those pleasure chemicals in our side of body. But as you're talking about going back to being completely primal, um, even depression, anxiety, stress, they were really normal parts of us to be in order to survive. You know, we needed um, the anxiety to have that impending doom about the future to survive. We needed stress to have the um, the adrenaline running through us to scan the savannah for tribes that may try to kill us um, or other, other lethal things. Um, we needed depression to be able to feel a withdrawal in the winter months and, and to lose our appetite, to be able to sit quietly and, um, I guess, detached from other people to be able to get through those winter months. So, um, and dopamine was the thing that gave us the that reward system that was highly addictive for us to have the grit and the determination to go searching for food when it was an awful experience to do so, you know, to get that little bit of honey and that huge burst of dopamine to get that high sugary content. We needed that reward system. We needed it to be almost addictive to get through and look for more because it wasn't, you know, every day wasn't necessarily fun. Mm. It just had to have meaning and purpose. So as you said, also through those connections, you needed um, to connection with your tribe to survive, yeah. um, to, to be able to find that food to survive. 
and and yet th- those things then drove us to this tipping point where food wasn't so scarce. We could now keep ourselves warm from the cold. Uh, we've developed ways to connect ourselves instantly with everyone. And in many ways, and I've just finished reading the new Yuval Noah Harari book, and he talks about that we are and always have been a hackable organism, you know, in, in horrible, horrible ways. If you look at Europe in the 19, 1930s, we, we were hackable to do awful, awful things to each other. But now we actually carry something around with us that we are willingly allowing ourselves to be hacked. We are using devices that are deliberately written with people like you who work on the coding teams to get in those reward loops, to get into those dopamine triggers. And I find that fascinating that we're now in this space as humans. And as you're saying, like we're clever and are we kind of almost too clever for our own good or are we so phenomenally clever that are we in control of technology or is it in control of us? And I think that that's a really important part to consider. And are we being client-centred? Are we being human-centred? as we develop these things. And I think that ultimately becomes around, you know, what's your motivation? What's your purpose, your intention of how you're interacting with this world? And as you said, even in your career, going off a little bit on a tangent, but bringing it back there, you know, it's this kind of, we have this idea of like, just be you. And it's like, well, who am I? Do any of us actually even know who we are? And, you know, part of that, I guess, is tapping into, well, who do you want to be? Who, what do you stand for? What you know? What's your backbone of how you operate? And um, checking in with that then to determine how you want to, you know, use technology for good or how you want to build things for good or for bad. I think that becomes an incredibly important part that um, we understand what we stand for um, and and what our purpose and direction in this world mm. is. But in terms of from an intellectual point. Um, and in line with what you're saying about with the 1930s and us being, you know, we can do awful things. You know, even looking at, you know, Rwanda with the Hutus and the Tutsis, like that's not that's not about a particular race or a tribe. That's about that's a complete reflection of the capacity of the human brain. Is that we can be phenomenally kind and gentle, but we can also be downright into savage survival mode. Um, and it, it's just a different layer of the brain. We've got um, the reptilian area of our brain, which is the kind of bottom area of our brain. And that's the area that makes us understand, am I hungry? Am I thirsty? Am I tired? It's pure survival. You think about a lizard, as soon as they have their young, they're not there to, how's your day? What are you up to? What's your dreams? It's literally, if I'm hungry, I'll eat you. You know, it's pure survival. Um, And then you've got this middle area of your brain, which is like a mammalian brain, uh, which is a little bit like a dog. You know, is this good? Is this bad? Am I happy? I'm sad. I'm bored. You're home. You know, um, but they don't have that capacity to think about, oh, while you were away, I I sketched myself out a doghouse that I think would be really efficient in this home. Um, You know, they don't have that capacity to think beyond um, and, and design and deliver. The thing that makes us fundamentally human is that prefrontal cortex, this front area of our brain that allows us to, you know, dream bigger, think about things beyond what has ever, you know, been possible, um, to send a man to space, to to create a bridge, um, to create technology like the mobile phone that gives us apps and we can call Uber and, you know, we can do all of these phenomenal things. Um, but as you said, it's knowing that we've got this huge range capacity, um, we've got to be in control of this and do it for good. We mentioned you mentioned earlier about the dopamine release, and I just want to kind of tie that off a little bit because, as someone, and you mentioned three things that are, are lovely dopamine uh, releases: uh, to, to have a cuddle, to have sex, to to take cocaine. Uh, I've done all three, um, and as I, you know, and I had a fairly unhealthy relationship with all three of those, and I'm not going to lie, 
as I started to recognize that I had an unhealthy relationship with those things and I, and I you know, abstinence became a, you know, a bit of a model to, to get away from that and then kind of reapproaching how do I get back into the, you know, intimacy and things like that. Tani, you kind of miss the rush. It's hard to accept that, oh, so this is normal. Yeah. Certainly when I was in a hypermanic state, yep. you know, that's what I thought happiness was. You know, I thought happiness felt like like that, like those first three seconds when the Tower of Terror drops you at Dreamworld, that's what it felt like. And when it wasn't like that every time, it's was like, oh, this is a bit, ah. It's a bit dull. It's exactly, <laughs> it's yeah. hard to kind of re-engage with life at, yeah. at that level when, but it's completely unsustainable mm-hmm. to have that as my experience of high because truly the low is equally as extreme. Yes. Utterly unsustainable, but you you kind of miss it. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I think it's, you know, it's an interesting thing and yeah, I'm probably being a little bit controversial here by even saying this and hopefully it doesn't damage my career too much, but even like there is, I think that there is actually some good in having that experience. Like, you know, and I mean, even from a neuropsychology and neuroscience perspective, you know, we know that sometimes even having an experience like ecstasy or from ecstasy of ecstasy is, you know, it gives us a glimmer of hope that, you know, if, to be able to experience that our brain, our very being can have that capacity to feel that damn good. It was like, well, geez, like I know it's in me now. Um, and that can actually increase a lot of hope for people and a lot of hunger and drive and determination in life to, you know, to achieve those things, which is kind of a little bit parallel, like, you know, searching for honey back in the primitive days. Like we, we needed those high rises. As far as I know, that's how it was originally developed. It was originally developed as a drug to be used in therapy. Yes, under was, super, Under supervision <laughs> yeah, where uh, we couples who were like beyond all repair yep. in a session would take this medication and then be guided through mm. and then have all those, you know, those things would, would melt away and anyone that's taken the drug will go, oh, yeah, I know how that would yeah. work. It would be the, like the best relationship counselling drug mm. ever. It kind uh, of broke down all of those barriers and all of that, um, those inhibitations and, and you just wanted to naturally connect with one another and you wanted to share the things that you felt positive about them and yeah. um, you, wanted to, you, you wanted to be physically close. You wanted to have um, tactile touch and appreciation for one another. Yeah. yeah. But then, you know, someone turned up at Studio 54 with it and then burned it, you know, <laughs> Sheik was on stage and then everything changed. Yes, exactly. <laughs> everything, every, everything changed. Uh, so when it comes to healthy dopamine releases, when it's not, you know, rather than lose, 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 win, we'll lose, 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 lose my children's, you know, inheritance win. Yes. Um, what are some healthy, healthier ways that we can get our, our dopamine out aside from pokies or Candy Crush or, or whatever it is that we're using? I think keep it simple, first of all. Like, it's the simple things in life. So often we don't actually appreciate those really simple things and the impact that it can have on our brain and our well-being. But I guess checking in, first of all, with, like, your values and what are the things that are actually fundamentally important to you and also approaching the world with a huge amount of curiosity. So, you know, for a lot of us, we don't really know what are those things that we enjoy, but once we kind of approach the world with it might be mini golf, it might be tennis, um, it might be splashing around in puddles like a day like today, get your gumboots on and go go nuts. It's about developing really uh, genuine and authentic relationships with people and squeezing their face and, you know, and um, giggling with one another about silly things. It's um, connecting with that inner child in you. Um, again, those those really simple things that often when the world becomes so serious, particularly when we're adults, we forget are so damn important and it literally is what I call shaking a jelly bean jar. So in your brain I see it like there's almost um, several different colours of, of jelly beans and these are your pleasure chemicals like your dopamine, your 
serotonin, your oxytocin, your norepinephrine. There's all of these different pleasure chemicals you have. And every time you do something good, it shakes your jelly bean and jelly beans trickle all through your body, make you feel good. Um, and it's incredibly important for our resilience, um, but also from in terms of, um, and when I talk about resilience, like your, your locus of control, when you know that there are things that are um, really simple that you can do that can make you feel good, one, it helps you relieve stress and inflammation, which causes disease. But it also means that this world just feels fun and meaningful, like, you know, and you've got a hunger to be part of it. And that, um, that helps us determine a strong locus of a control, a, a sense that we are responsible for our own happiness and we can do things very simply and easily to be able to find meaning and purpose in this world. So we don't feel a little bit like a plastic bag in the wind. We feel like we're the one directing. We're kind of the captain at the front of the ship. <laughs> you're, you're, yeah. you're talking my language on so many <laughs> levels, Tani, because I, I certainly know that when I... When I went through, uh, I, I don't know if you know, but I, I got I got very very sick, and I ended up experiencing psychosis and experiencing paranoid delusion, and I had to be on a lot of drugs for a long time until it kind of got better. I was really grateful for those those medications. I'm not on them now, and I still manage. I uh, you know it's still around, like it still kind of flicks in and out, um, but I can manage it. And what a phenomenal thing! Like it, it's extraordinary. Yeah, it's extraordinary that I was able to. I did a lot of work. Like I, bet, I bet you did. It's not, yeah. you know, and, I, and when I talk about it, I talk about it all the time. It's like, it's not like you take a paracetamol and then the headache goes away. No, the drugs are the, the five-point safety harness that you mm. wear so you can do the rally driving. Yeah, they're like the, you, the CPR, but you've still got to live the life. Yeah, that, this, this gives you the seatbelt so you can drive through the, the, the super scary rally driving yeah. forest to get out of and do the work yep. to, to help you get new thinking patterns in because you can't just... Otherwise, what you just sedate a sedated piece of mashed potato for yeah. the rest of your life, and yeah, that's it takes no way. Yeah, a lot to, of work. That's no way to live. Um, Good on you. So, um, but what you're talking about those those things that you can control, they they can be quite small, can't they? They can mm-hmm. be. I'm going to eat a good meal. I'm going to get eight hours sleep. Yep. Like when you're putting a kid to bed, you have this yeah. ritual of, I'm going to come, I'm going to kiss you on the forehead, I'm going to tuck you, tuck you, pat you twice, and I'll go. And then that's that little pattern that repeats every night. So the kid goes, oh, there's those things that happen just before I go to sleep. Develops that really healthy attachment to one another. That's it. Yeah. It's really important. Yeah. These things are super important. And indeed, when the world does feel like you, it is completely, and lately, you know, if you, if you look at your phone, <laughs> with a couple of search keywords, you can think that there's no point yep. that the world's ending. Yep. You've got to have some feeling that gotta, you have a say, yourself. that you have a say in how your day's going to go. Absolutely. And, yep. and these things are really, really, really important. You are an incredibly talented uh, operator. In fact, you are possibly this country's premier trauma psychologist. Um, you're a first responder to incredibly traumatic events. Can you please uh, talk a little bit about how you got into trauma psychology and why it's important? It kind of found me as much as I found it. Like, again, back in kind of like we are saying psychology at 14, um, it was a little bit like that. I initially, I moved to Sydney. I, was, I did my degree in, um, in Melbourne and then moved to Sydney and I started to work at a drug rehab and in schools and jails and courts. Um, and at that stage, I was still pretty young. I think I must have been about like 22 years old. Um, and, you know, it was quite interesting actually going to like Long Bay Prison and you know, Emu Plains and these, um, and, you know, you, you have to strip off all of the, the different stuff that, you know, 
might make it a dangerous um, interaction. You're not allowed pens in there. Um, you're in a, a dual connection um, space where there's like a security guard or someone watching as the inmate comes in. You've got to be close to the door. There's a panic button. Um, and, and in that role, which was quite a phenomenal role and, again, you know, um, was fundamentally carved my experience of going into trauma, um, I would go in and I would introduce myself to inmates before they were going to be released um, to develop a rapport and say, hey, I'm your person. Like, I'm going to be here for you so that when you get out, um, if there's a pimp trying to chase you for money or, you know, if there's, you know, particular things that uh, substances or, um, or or people that are, are going to be unhealthy or unhelpful for you, I'm going to have your back. We're going to be, go through this together and we're going to walk side by side looking at what are your goals, what's, you know, this is your second chance, what do you want to do? And it was, it was really quite phenomenal to see, you know, I didn't see people as a, like a criminal. It was you're a person and you're dynamic and you're complex just like we all are. And often you saw there that there was complex trauma was, you know, what was a major component of it. Substance use and complex trauma was a huge component um, in why people were, were where they were. Um, and sometimes it might have even been, I had a horrendous heartbreaking client um, who had been, pimped out at the age of eight years old God. by her parents and was tra- and and the money that they would make from that um, would be what they would use to, for drugs. Um, you know, it's, it's horrific, horrific things. Um, I was also working in the drug rehab there um, and so you'd find young people that were withdrawing from drugs um, and supporting them through their emotional distress, the distress tolerance of their little bodies withdrawing. Um, and then also in, I would go into the courts to represent my clients to say, you know, these people have been through the most horrific of circumstances and you've got them locked up again because they re-offended because they stole five bucks because you only have to do the simplest thing to go back into jail when you're kind of on a, a good probation. And sometimes they were really, really simple things. They got caught smoking pot or they got caught stealing five bucks and that was enough for them to go back to jail. But the life that they've had to survive had just been horrific. Um, and so it was, you know, being that conduit um, communicator um, and so yeah I, I think trauma I had a really deep um, care I had I found really deep care for these people um, I had a lot of time for these people and I had a lot of time for people who had a lot of time for themselves if they were going to work that damn hard I was going to I was more than happy to work that damn hard with them um, and then from there I worked um, for four years in that in that role and then decided to go into, I think it's really important to continue to grow and develop as a psychologist to be the best psychologist you can be. I didn't want to go into private practice. I wanted to be surrounded by other brilliant psychologists that would constantly challenge me, constantly create a mirror in front of me to say, am I, am I the best? You know, can I be better? Um, and so then I went into corporate psychology, into employee assistance programs and part of that I worked in the clinical team and I was kind of known as the trauma girl, um, I guess, because of the experience that I'd had, you know, in that previous role. Um, whenever, you know, trauma, just like cancer, it's one of those things that can happen to anyone, um, no matter how privileged you are. Um, and so when working in this corporate uh, clinical environment, when there was really difficult cases, they would transfer a lot of those calls to me. Um, and so over time, I was, um, I was providing a lot of the trauma counselling to these people. Um, and then I got a tap on the shoulder to say, we'd really like you in the trauma unit. So it was, the, um, it was a New South Wales trauma team, but essentially we'd provide um, trauma on-site critical incident support anywhere in the world um, after a natural disaster or terrorism or a major critical incident that happened in the workplace. Um, so I worked in there with the phenomenal human beings that uh, we were on call. So, you know, I'd get a call at 3 a.m. in the morning and be working on a major case um, for several hours and then I'd get another call to another critical incident that happened. So we'd work back to back. Um, with these 
beautiful psychologist that I'd literally would I'd, um, trust my life with. You know, we'd be going into circumstances where you had to have a lot of trust. Yeah, it was really, really meaningful work. So that's, I guess, my initial step into trauma. That's, a, that's <laughs> an ex- extraordinary and, and I'll... There's there's a lot there, but I'll, I'll I might I might wrap on that when we, when we get to the end. But let me let me just firstly let's def, let's define trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we're talking about having witnessed or been a victim of a a traumatic incident. Uh, could be some violence towards you, witnessing violence towards someone else. You know, either being involved in or witnessing uh, an extremely, you know, horrible accident where someone was, you know, either mutilated or or, or died. Um, being involved in an act of terrorism, being involved in an armed robbery. These are the sorts of things that we're talking about, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, okay, so and violence, of course, being you know, sexual violence uh, as well as yes. as you as you mentioned. Yeah, sexual, physical, emotional, mental. Yeah. Right. These things are often. You don't wake up that morning expecting it'll happen. I'm imagining most of the time we're talking about an incident that could probably last only 10 seconds. Sometimes, yeah. When, you know. Sometimes it's, a, yeah, it's been a lifelong of abuse and sometimes it's just, it's like your life, your, the world's been ripped up from underneath you within seconds. Yeah, because you've seen this thing happen yeah. and you, you now... You, you can't know. unsee it or I know it. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, why... Why is it important? Why is it important to, if you have experienced something like that or seen something like that or lived through something like that, even though it might be people listening, um, and don't worry, I'll do a, a super massive trigger warning at the start of this. Yeah. I'm big on that. Why is it important for people if they've never sought to unpack that and debrief from that and develop strategies around that? Why is it important for people to do that? Um, well, I'll, I'll take a long answer for um, that. We, we have a long time. <laughs> um, first of all, from, this, um, from the trauma point, I think it's really important for people to know that trauma isn't by the definition of the experience itself. It's how it made you feel. Um, and trauma is different for everybody. And so it's, a, it's important for you to be able to acknowledge yourself if you ha- and give yourself permission um, to say, I have been through trauma, if you know that you felt it, you felt traumatised by the experience. Um, you know, so often we say, I don't have the right um, to, you know, to say I've, I've been traumatised or I've gone through trauma because mine wasn't anywhere worse than somebody else's. And we shouldn't compare, you know, ourselves that way. It's not, well, that person got hit by a car and I only got slapped on the face. It doesn't work that way. It's, it's how you felt, um, how it made you feel that is the final definition of trauma. It is really, really important that we give ourselves that permission and that opportunity to process trauma, um, but it has to be done in a really, with a lot of dignity. You know, there has to be, it's, it's give, first giving yourself that permission to, pro, to be able to process that and create an empowering narrative. You know, you are not the total, this, this experience is not the totality of your existence. It's a moment in time and you are, you are more and greater than that experience. But we do know that it can fundamentally impact our whole being if we don't process it. Um, when we look at the different layers, you know, we've got um, in terms of our genetics, it's now been proven that when we've been through a trauma, our, gen- our genetic code is fundamentally changed. Um, which is huge. And the kindest thing that you can ever do for yourself and for the, the, the offspring, you know, the children that you may produce is to process that trauma before you have children if you can because it sits in their DNA code but they can't unravel it the way you can. 
So there's something incredibly important if you can give yourself that permission. Um, but doing it in an environment where someone cares about you, um, where they're, they're respectful of you and they give you dignity and space to be able to unravel that and to know that they're there because it's going to get ugly. It's going to get ugly before it gets pretty um, to unravel that um, and having someone to walk side by side with you to do so. It's one of the greatest gifts you could give yourself, your children and the world. Are you... So let, let me just talk about the, the shift in DNA because that is, that, that's, okay. Because when I was writing my book, I, you know, I wanted to unpack, you know, you don't just, even though I did just wake up one day and start having, you know, episodes of psychosis and dealing with paranoid delusions, it, I didn't just wake up one day. It, had, it was a long thing and there was childhood trauma and all kinds of things that led to it. And in unpacking that, I had to also recognise my parents and that at one point in both of their lives they were both refugees they both fled military oppression uh my mum when she was three and then lived in a refugee camp and uh you know went through all kinds of traumatic stuff uh, in germany um and then and my dad when he was 24 when he had to flee prague when the russians were rolling down tanks down his street um so you're saying not only because i thought that it was only the behaviours that they had developed to survive those things, which then, um, you know, I as a child had witnessed uh, and and you, my mirror neurons were working and I modelled their, their behaviour. Are you saying to me that inside their bodies, genetic switches flipped from on to off or off to on, and then when their DNA met, when they, you know, made love and made me, that those switches were a part of the map that built my body? Very much so, yeah. Far out. Yeah. Um, no, I I would have to look at their. I mean, I you know I'm not a microbiologist to the to the extent that I could tell you where it is. You know, um, but yeah, that you know that's a, a huge component of our trauma. Far out. So gen- actual genes, actual genes, genes get turned on and off. Yes. Holy moly. And so it's not just so, but that says everything about why it's important to deal with trauma. Incredibly because important. That and it's shit house because that person that committed the violence towards you may no longer even be alive. That incident might have been 25 years ago. Yet the legacy of that and their fucking power over you is still within you. God damn it. Yeah. I flinched just as I said it. It's still within you. Yeah. And that you have the risk of passing that on. And then that incident and that person, for whatever reason, that violence is then passed on to a kid that you might have. Yeah. So if that's not a bloody reason to go and kill a shrink, I don't know what is. Absolutely. And when you think about that a child can then be born dysregulated, you know, they might um, have symptoms characteristic of ADHD, but it may not be, you know, ADHD in its term of, well, you just don't know how to sit straight. It's my body's dysregulated because, you know, it's got a sense of almost trauma. It's, you know, it's not feeling settled, but I don't know where this origin is and I don't know how to settle this. Um, yeah, it can, it can have a huge impact on a person's life. Tell me about the, and I'm, I'm going to assume that un, unless someone finds you or you find someone through a, a trauma response team, as you mentioned before, as, you know, I've been in this response and through my workplace or something, suddenly now I'm speaking to a psychologist. Yeah. I haven't had to pick up a phone and go. I'm assuming that for many people, they're like, oh, I've got to deal with this. Mm-hmm. It's, it's affecting me every day. When I close my eyes or when I hear this particular word, I want to see someone in a red jumper. I, I, I get the feeling in my body again. 
but I'm too confronted by having to go to someone I don't know mm-hmm. and tell them because if I get freaked out just by seeing a, a red jumper, how am I going to be, oh, it's all too hard, mm-hmm. I'll just not go. What would you say to someone who might, you know, be reluctant to seek treatment because the reliving of it in taking the history of the first, you know, one or two consults with a psychologist might be too confronting? I think it's a really important thing to consider um, and so you would want to do it thoughtfully. I think ultimately that comes from good self-preservation, you know, and I think we should really honour and respect people having good self-preservation that, you know, that we don't just open slather, just say everything about everything that's going on in our mind because... Why give information to someone else unless they have the skills and the tools to help us? Otherwise, we're just basically spreading our own gossip, aren't we? You know, so, you know, I I do really sincerely appreciate that and also think it is incredibly important that while I'm a huge advocate for people um, putting themselves out there and getting the support that they need, um, that that is a really important part, that they are connected with someone that they feel um, they feel safe, they feel respect. And I know that that's ultimately part of the journey itself. You know, you don't walk suddenly into a room and, and immediately trust someone. Um, but I think it is important to acknowledge that those are worthwhile considerations and concerns. Like you're not you're not being avoidant by thinking those things. It's good self-preservation to consider that. Um, and so it may be initially um, that you do a little bit of support for yourself first. It may be that you start writing it out um, and try to make sense of it for yourself first. And so you look at how do I want to articulate this? How do I want to present this to the world initially? Um, it may be talking to a friend about it. Um, it may be yeah, writing a diary. There, you know, it, it may take a little bit of you first um, trying to put some words towards it before you speak to somebody else. The other thing that's really important, though, is in counselling that it's not the details of the situation itself that are important. Again, it's how it made you feel. So it is really important that when you're first starting to do any form of counselling, it really, it's nobody else's damn business what happened to you. They're there to help you feel better. They're there to hold your hand and work side by side. No one is an expert at your life. You are the expert. Um, And so I think that that's also really important to know, you know, it's not about someone, a a psychologist or someone sitting down and going, what happened? This is not a movie. This is not a news column. It's not a, a magazine entertainment section. That's irrelevant it's what happened. It's, it's how are you? Are you okay? How have you managed to get through this? What are the skills that you use to survive? Um, what do you want this to mean in your life? You know, uh, what, you know, it's asking questions about you as an individual. Like what, what do you want it to mean in your life? Trauma forces you into corners of yourself that you've never even met before. Um, And a lot of it is around that, you know, not only does it rip the world up from underneath you physically, but it's more so around you as a person, your identity and your belief system about the world. That's the thing that becomes the most traumatic, that trauma has layers. It's like I responded in a way different to how I thought I would respond. The world is different to the way I thought it would be. Um, It can absolutely break our heart of our innocence of the world being a particular place it now doesn't seem that way anymore and those are the things that are incredibly important so I think going in and getting that help one it's about as you know kind of establishing a sense of trust and rapport um, and respect but it's also knowing you don't just have to go and and you know divulge your entire story of trauma that's not what's initially important it's about them focusing on who you are what you stand for what's important to you in creating an empowering narrative about that experience for you if that makes sense. Oh, mate, 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 makes perfect sense. Uh, can we talk a bit about 
building that trust with a psychologist. I'm a, I'm a firm believer that I like to call it you, you date them. Yeah. Yes. Yep. You, you, you don't, I mean, unless you're, uh, unless you live in a part of the country and I understand that there are parts of our country where access to mental health professionals is quite limited. Mm-hmm. If you are lucky enough to live in a part of the country that you can shop around, mm-hmm. how do you feel about that? How do you, what, what are some things that people might do to check that the psychologist they're going to go and see is the one for them? It's a hard thing um, in some sense, but a really, really simple thing in the same time. Um, the biggest thing I'd say is trust your gut. Um, the hardest part about that is that so many of us are so detached from ourselves um, that we, we don't, we're not in tune with our gut anymore. We're not in tune with our instincts. But um, I think that that first and foremost becomes the main thing. Like, does this feel good? You know, does my heart pound, my stomach twist and my intestines tighten? Do I feel disrespected? Do I feel like this person is trying to have some kind of um, power or authority over me? Or do I feel like this person's sitting at my level um, and is going to work just as hard on me as I'm going to work on myself? You know, so I I think it's around that language, that personability, that humour. Um, it's yeah, it's the, the flow. Just like if you were to meet a friend, or you know, or start dating a partner. You know, what are the things you're looking for in that person? Is it integrity? Are they clear at explaining confidentiality? Are they clear at explaining to you the expectations of what the sessions will look like? Did you actually set goals? Did they hear what was you know? It, doesn't matter what the psychologist wants to achieve. It's about what you want to achieve. Did they did they allow you in that first session to really hear out what are your goals? Did you set clear goals so that you can, as you go through, constantly check in to make sure that it wasn't a waste of time, that it, you know, it was in line with the things that were important to you? So I think trusting your gut, having really clear explanation of confidentiality, including limitations, um, and, and setting goals that feel meaningful to you are the main, main pieces. Yeah, I've, I've certainly had... Like I wouldn't be sitting here if I hadn't had positive experiences with psychologists, but I've had, I've had negative experiences <laughs> yeah. with psychologists. Sadly. I've had, oh, this, this one bloke, uh, he developed a crush on me, and, and and it just stopped being impartial altogether, and it was really hard because wow. he was just, he just sat there telling me everything I was doing was right, it wasn't. Um, but it, yeah, it was a total breach of boundary. It was really yeah. shit house. It was a it was an awful thing to have to happen to me. And I guess ultimately, from the board of ethics, that's something he should be checking in with himself: is that you know, am I in a good place to be able to do this? Can I serve this person in the best way possible, or yeah. have I got alternative motives? Which oh, that, obviously that was, you that did. Was, that was overseas. Poor self awareness. <laughs> it was when I, it was when I when I was overseas. Um, when you, you've you've responded to some incredibly high profile. Um, uh, incidents that many people would would know about, particularly the Lint Cafe siege. Uh, um, that's just one example, but it gives people a, an idea of like, oh goodness, that's probably the most f- frightening thing. I, I don't think any Australian would not know where they were when they heard about that or, or saw it go down. When you are responding to something so traumatic, so intense, so high profile, so politically charged. Where do you even start? I think the most important, and I guess when you look at like a a bystander or someone who's experienced trauma as opposed to when you're um, a a trauma responder, um, I guess the fundamental difference is that you, you have got a very clear purpose. 
and your purpose is to get in there and to help the per uh, help people you know and that's all you have to worry about that's the only thing that matters is making sure that those people are okay and to the best of your ability and so you know everything else just disappears and it's just about seeing the individual and connecting with them on their level um, and holding them through that part and initially when you're doing a very first responder it's not even counseling at that stage a lot of it it's psychoeducation so um, it's sitting with someone and and naming the things that they're going through so that you're bringing their world from upside down back to normal it's like oh how can you read what I'm going through? Oh, I, I thought I was falling apart, but you're now telling me that these are reasonable responses, that I'm having reasonable responses to an unreasonable event. Um, and that, you know, immediately starts to ground them again. It's saying, you know, if you've got a dry mouth, your pupils are dilated, um, your heart's pounding, um, you know, that you're, you've got brain fog, that, you know, you, you lose your keys, you, you know, you, you're tongue-tied, you can't find simple words. Um, that's what your brain's meant to be doing in a time of trauma. These, you know, the, there's your heart pounds, your stomach twists, intestines tighten, you release a chemical called cortisol, which is a stress hormone. It floods your prefrontal cortex. You can't think properly right now. Um, but these are the, you know, these are some of the things you can do. These are some of the things you're going to expect in the next 24 to 72 hours. So it's more so around bringing their, their lack of normal back into normal and them feeling, them feeling human again is the most important part. And for them to know, I've got you, you know, we're in this together. Yeah. Um, even if it means sometimes crawling literally under the truck with them and, you know, talking with them for that hour to keep them hanging on to life um, in that time. So sometimes, yeah, it's just about bringing them back to this human uh, uh, level of this is what to expect and I know what you're going through. And just from, from to, to make sure that I hear that right, so the initial thing that you try to do is just I see you. Yes. I see you. It, it's the world is you know feeling like you're alone you're not here's what's happening this is why it's happening i see you i'm here yes um i'm guessing you're at, you're trying to there's some tactile contact mm -hmm. there you're holding a hand or something like that if um, they feel comfortable yeah, yeah absolutely yeah it's just bringing them back into we're two humans here together and you're going to be okay yeah i, yeah, I mean I, I yeah that I, I can imagine how that would be you know, extraordinarily um, powerful. I and I guess it's about pairing, isn't it? Like ultimately, you know, in that you, they've just, their whole world has just has turned up upside down and their memory, the, how they feel at that time is I'm alone, I'm scared. Um, and you want to now pair that with you're not alone mm. and everything's going to be okay. So they walk away from that memory and it's not just this awful experience that it's also paired with something really meaningful and deep ah, and grounding. That, that's really powerful. That that's really powerful because I, uh, I can certainly relate to the idea of oh, and, and I tell people all the time. You know, like at the time, your brain it, it tricks you thinking you're the only one feeling like this, and it's going to last forever. Yeah. Because as far as you're concerned, those two things are real. Yes, absolutely. And yeah. I've felt that many, many, many times. Um, and you mentioned it before that it's not what happened to you; it's how it made you feel. And I certainly know there'd be people listening who, like, if you're not the person, as you mentioned under, under the truck, if you're the person that saw that happen, you might feel an incredible sense of guilt mm -hmm. that, well, nothing happened to me. Exactly. I just saw it. I don't need to go for help, or I shouldn't go for help. I feel bad about going for help. What would you say to that person? I think it is so important, again, when we talk about from a DNA perspective, when we talk about it like you are worthy, you, you know, you are worthy in your own right to get, um, to get the support that you need and to live a flourishing, thriving life. And, you know, I think 
ultimately, if you if you felt affected by seeing somebody else hurt, that only speaks volumes about your values as a person. You know that you you witnessed something that insulted your values, something that you stood for. Um, so f- first and foremost, it represents something incredibly beautiful about you. It's not a weakness; it's a strength that I witnessed somebody else get hurt, and that fundamentally hurt me to the core. Um, and it's also then you know what was that emotional? What were the physical sensations that you experienced during that time? And you may not even be aware of what the core beliefs that were developed from that, but you may find that you fundamentally changed the way that you operate in this world, even if it's in micro moments. But, you know, it may be that you're a little bit more hypervigilant, you know, you or you don't want to leave the house as much or you're less trusting of people. You know, you're, what, that would be a tragedy in its own right, that not only did somebody else get severely hurt, but now your world has become severely smaller because of that experience as well. Um, and so it's allowing you to know that, I guess, giving you permission to live a full and holy life, knowing that you've got beautiful values that you want to act in line with and that you don't want that trauma to be the thing that fundamentally makes you smaller or less because of it. Um, so, I, yeah, I think it's incredibly important for that person to process. So, so important because ultimately what happens then, if you are, you know, if you're hyper alert or you don't want to leave the house much, then how are you ever going to get that cuddle yes. that gives you the dopamine release? Exactly. To give you that feeling of actually being a human. Yes. And... And what a tragedy that, yeah. you know, so many lives, the path of destruction of that trauma left um, and that that moment in time does not deserve to have that much weight or control. You have described, when well, we've just been speaking about witnessing, you've described in this conversation over the last hour about four things that have made me had to take a breath, look outside, go, that's okay, harbour's still there. <laughs> that's all right, I can feel my feet in my socks. Um what does self-care look like for you? Because you do this all day. And as you mentioned, you do it for three or four hours, you hang up a phone, the phone rings five minutes later, boom, something completely different, someone who needs you just as much. How the fuck do you go? How do you do it? How do you then connect with the people around you? What, what does your self-care look like? Um, and I don't... I guess we're all, you know, we're all fighting our own fights. Um, And so even though I might be in the thick of this from a career perspective, um, I feel incredibly privileged and honoured to be able to be in an opportunity with phenomenal human beings um, and to see them at their points of complete courage and strength. Um, So, you know, I'd say, you know, in in most circumstances, there isn't anything traumatising for me. I'm there with a clear purpose to help. And I've, you know, if they've been through something far worse than what I've been through, and I've got the energy and the purpose and the focus to get in there and to support them during that time. But as you said, I'm also a human being, and there's certainly circumstances where I'm holding their hand and crying with them. You know, it it absolutely gut wrenches me, or you think, this is so cruel, this is so unfair. And it it does certainly, you're giving energy, we're constantly trading energy. So I do use up and burn energy when I'm giving. And it is incredibly ethical and important that I look after myself because if I'm not in a good place, then I'm not giving good energy to someone and that's not fair on them. So that I take um, very, very seriously, that I have to be mentally and physically in a very good space to be able to give good energy to another person because who am I after someone's been through something so awful to then trade with them dysregulated energy from me too. Um, So I do hold that as a, um, with that privilege of being very responsible for that. 
from a day-to-day level for me personally, my self-care um, is really it's practising those things of, as we were talking about before, being really present. So with my in my relationship that simple things like I look my partner in the eyes, um, you know, every night when he comes home, I bounce up and, hello, how are you? And I give him a big kiss and a squeeze, hello. Um, that when I cook, I'm present in that moment. I really, you know, am so grateful for the fresh produce that I have and, you know, to be able to eat an incredibly clean, healthy meal. Um, I do yoga where, you know, I I sit in my body and I feel the pain and know the strength that I'm giving it. I read a lot. I'm just absolutely addicted to learning. I'll learn for the rest of my life and, and see it as a huge privilege to even be educated. You know, some people don't have that, that. They're not lucky enough to be able to, fortunate enough to be able to be educated, particularly a lot of young girls um, in communities. So for me, it's it's living a full life and being present in those moments, um, tapping in and out. So I'm present in the moment that I'm responding to a trauma, but I'm present with my partner. Um, I'm present when I sleep. I'm present when I learn. Um, yeah, for me, th- those things really help me stay strong. Do you meditate? Probably more mindful than I am meditating. Meditating is bloody hard. <laughs> it's really bloody sure hard. Sure is. Um, and I probably haven't completely mastered the art. It's something that I'll have to do more and more of. But I'm certainly mindful. I'm mindful in, 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 and present in my moments. Yeah. Speak, but when you're cooking, to be grateful for the fresh produce, that's, uh, you know, that's, that's something that is important because it does bring you to that, again, as you spoke about that, that locus of control. Can you explain a little bit about, like you mentioned, you know, What's the structure within, because I'm always, I'm kind of fascinated by this. What's the structure within your professional community about uh, the checks and balances? Like, is there someone that you, you know, go and say, well, I had this case on Monday, this case on Tuesday, this person did this, this person did that. I, you know, is there a structure around that, that you kind of, as psychologists, keep each other in check to make sure yes, that you're also so. okay? Very, very much so. Um, it's a fantastic system. Um, so you have one-on-one clinical supervision, but you also have group supervision, and then you just have general best practice. So even if I, for example, if I had a client um, and it was a really complex case, um, or if it was that they were high, they were suicidal, or you know I had fear of them being at risk, at every touch point, I would then, outside of this kind of more structured supervision, I would then sit down it would be confidential or anonymous and I'd say but I have client and they present with this these are the risk assessment that I completed this is my case treatment plan these are the goals that we've set together and you'd get them to pick that apart to say yes that's the best practice or did you ever consider it but from this point or did you ever ask what their relationship was like with their family there could be other things that are fundamentally triggering this person that you you haven't even started to address or appreciate yet so kind of on a more of an ad hoc response level, um, it's always best practice to check in with mm. a psychologist, another psychologist that you highly respect to review mm. um, how you're responding to things and making sure that you're doing the best case treatment plan well, what, you can. Well, what about you? What about you? I mean, you're every every time you sit down with someone, you're essentially taking a, like a tiny little sip of arsenic, which might be <laughs> fine in small doses, yeah. but after 10, 20 years of it, that's, you know, how do you make sure, does someone helping to make sure that you're not carrying this, you know, one case into the next? And that probably goes down to one, just having really healthy, thriving relationships with other psychs to be able to debrief. So that's something, you know, some, and we're really beautiful at doing that, particularly in like trauma unit teams or things like that, what might be driving back from a, you know, from a trauma and you call someone and say, I just need to debrief. Like, I can't get the smell of the blood, you know, 
out of my mind and, you know, being able to process that. And I, I use that one as an example because it's something I, I can't, I, I, there's one particular trauma that I've responded to and I don't think I'll ever be able to get that smell out of my mind. But, um, you know, it is really important while it's still raw because we know neural pathways um, strengthen themselves over time to just ad hoc debrief. Um, but then f- from a more structured set, then you have one-on-one supervision where you have a psychologist that basically, yeah, checks in on you, you know, almost does a counselling session with you. They they look at how you're cognitively processing things to make sure that you're, you know, you're articulate, you're clear, um, you're present, you're calm, um, but also just checking in on your general life, you know, how are you maintaining relationships, you know, how you, uh, what are your goals at the moment, um, you know, how you, how's life? Um, and you then express to them things that are stress. It may be workload that you're going through or really difficult cases or interpersonal conflict um, or personal conflict. Um, yeah, that they check in with you and kind of keep you on the straight and narrow. And straight and narrow. <laughs> At the risk of exploring, uh, so my, my, big, my big trigger was, was climate change. All right. I was having an irrational response to something that is rational to be afraid of. I was afraid of the right things, but the timeline was wrong. As far as I was concerned, it was happening today. And I had this paranoid delusion that the seas were rising 15 metres today and I was the only one that knew. Yeah, this is a thing that is happening. Mm-hmm. And it is happening Very much so. right now. It is. And it's happening to everyone on this planet. When it comes to trauma, uh, where we live, our home is an incredibly precious place. Mm-hmm. Sure is. When you start talking about entire nations, for example, we're seeing it in Kiribati, entire nations, you know, you look at at-risk countries like Tonga, Samoa, what role does trauma psychology have? And like, are you as a community going, well, we'd better kind of figure out how to deal with 10,000 people at a time because we're not going to be able to figure this out one-on-one when you've got... 110,000 people having to leave Tonga over a course of a number of years and then everything they knew, their entire culture is now in another country where they've all had to go and live. Um, what, what, what's the future of, of, of psychology and what role does it play in, in that as we move forward as a, as a race of humans on this little globe? I really like that question. That's really thoughtful. Um, and again, you know, when we're talking about before, like that just represents the good values of who you have as a person that you cared so deeply from your core for this entire earth. Like what a phenomenal human you are that you cared so deeply about that, that it wasn't just so self-absorbed that it was about you and whether you were going to get another like on Facebook, you know, like it, it was something about this entire world. Um, wow. Wow. It is a big question and it's a really important one um, and I think it probably has so many different layers to it. You know, from a, a, a not, I don't mean simple um, to belittle it, but more in a, a kind of a, a simple point, it's, you know, hearing people out um, and really listening to where that fear or that concern comes from. It's, if you know, from from a very basic level, yeah, your your home is so incredibly important. So this is a really important thing for humanity because we know being displaced has a huge traumatic impact on us. Um, it takes us away from our culture, our identity, our social networks, um, a healthy routine and structure. So for, for the health of this humanity, it's a really incredibly important piece that we consider. Um, and it also speaks to how important it is to have clear communication, that if we have technology now that can help us, um, that we should be using it to the best 
to its full extent and to the best of our ability to be able to help predict and understand where climate change is going. And I think that's one of the biggest things is it's the fear of the unknown is really crippling. Um, and in any form of change that's happening, whether it's change management within a workplace or change within a family system or change climate change, um, I think it is really important that we're reassuring people that you will know the information you need to know when you need to know it, you know, that we will not be holding information back from you. And I think even when we talk about what's just happened in Indonesia and the tsunami, those things only further, I think, uh, reinforce that that fear that it feels irrational, but it has a rational reason for it because we could have bloody known about it. Um, so I can understand where that comes from. I think knowing, dare we say, it's not going to happen tomorrow. So let's let's get, you know, all cylinders firing. You know, let's really understand this and the people who probably know about climate change the most are probably insurance companies dare I say because they're the ones valuing the the risk of oh, yeah. things and there's money in it and unfortunately sometimes we we value money more than we value life um, so you know if people have got this information about climate change and and the kind of the path then we really should be creating as a one world a staggered approach to how we're going to respond to this because Ultimately, it's going to affect us all anyway. You know, those people who are displaced in Tonga or are displaced in islands first and foremost. Hell, the Gold Coast. Yeah. All right, most of Melbourne, you yeah. know. Like, you, you might have a beautiful a beautiful house, uh, you know, right in one of those kind of low-lying areas around uh, like Miami or, or something like that in, in Florida, but I'm in like Miami in, in the Gold Coast, all yeah. right? You're, you're pretty close to the high tide mark. You only need a couple of metres and then, you know... Not only is the the sewage system, everything's gone. Like you, you can't live there anymore. Mm. Where are you going to go? Yeah, exactly. And like, then where do you go? Then the people that live in the higher grounds, like, well, hang on, no, I've been living here for thirty years. Mm. Why should you come here? And like, that's not even you know immigrants. That's like other people from. I guess it's migrants by then. Yeah. Because they're you know people from within the, the culture. I mean, I, I just I really hope that you are a big part mm. of policy, <laughs> you know, at, at that level because we are certainly going to need, uh, as a community, that kind of support. Mm. On, but it's the challenge, I, f I feel, is that it's that real psychology at scale, which is the trick that we're yet to unlock, really, uh, because it's such a one-on-one -on -one thing. I think, it, yeah, it comes down to kind of almost the science and, you know, really understanding it so that we've got a well-informed process and a well-informed argument. You know, unfortunately, when someone goes in concerned about something but they're uninformed, they're often dismissed yes. and not respected. So, you know, it's collaborating that when you've got science and change makers and thought leaders um, and psychologists coming together and just saying, well, and for the greater humanity and saying, well, these things are going to happen, so let's be really well-informed about them and actually creating um, a really good process to be able to respond worldwide to yeah. these things because ultimately yeah it is going to affect us that as we know already refugees they don't just affect the country that they're trying to run away from um, it affects the entire world and we could do that with so much more elegance we could be really proud of ourselves as, as humans on how yeah. we respond to those things Oh, we, look, we have and we can again. The other day, uh, the lady that made me my sandwich, mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> she, runs a, uh, she runs a health food shop in, uh, on the other side of the bridge there. Um, she, uh, she was 27 years old at the Tinyanaman Square protests and many people around her died. She escaped and, and she named him. She goes, Bob Hawke let me in. Wow. Bob Hawke let me in. I had to, I had to leave. I had to leave my one-year-old son behind. Bob Hawke let me in. And then a year later, 
I was he, I was allowed to bring my son here, and we've had we've had the best life ever. Uh, we've done that in our country with um, people uh, from Vietnam. We've done that in our country with people from the Middle East in the eighties. We've we can, we should, we will, we do, because we're better for it. Yeah. Right now we're that whole the trauma of what's happening on Madison. <laughs> Nauru is a whole other story. Uh, it's a whole other hour and a half we could talk about. But um, I, think, I believe we have the capacity to do it and it makes oh, us as absolutely. humans, it makes us better people when we do. And I think when we take two steps back and we see things from a bigger picture, that's when um, we can do things really elegantly and with a lot of dignity. But, you know, often when we do it, when we feel pressured, um, naturally, you know, when we look at the core of how the brain is processed, we feel pro- uh, pressured by a problem and we're not looking at it objectively. Our heart pounds, our stomach twists, our intestines tighten and we respond with fear. And fear is the most crippling thing we can possibly have as human beings. It makes us do the most gut-wrenching, unhuman things to one another, whether it's a, a political decision or whether it's the, the people who are voting for that decision um, or just how we respond. When we respond with fear, we're completely crippled. So it does take us now... We with, you know, with a little bit more luxury of time to take those two steps back and think, who do we want to be? What do we stand for as, um, as human beings? You know, and what do we want for the greater humanity? And let's start to create a plan now so that we can be incredibly proud of, as opposed to waiting until we've got this literally banging at our door saying, bloody let me in or I'm going to die. Um, that's nothing, nothing good happens during those times, um, yeah, when we do things based on fear. I could do 10 episodes with you. Tony. I really could. It's very kind of you. Thank maybe you Maybe we much. should. Maybe we should figure out something else, something else that we do. Um, I'm really grateful pleasure. that you took the time today. I know you are a, a person in incredibly high demand and uh, I know there's many people that have dinner every night grateful that they met you. Oh, that's very, very uh, kind. Well, it's true. Thank, Thank you, you so much for your time. I, yeah, I feel incredibly privileged and honoured. It's, it's been really, really lovely to spend time with you. Oh, You're so a very, very thoughtful man. <laughs> I think that's the thing that got me in trouble in the first place, that I didn't really have a filter. It was just like an open gate. But maybe you're just, you're not, you haven't changed who you are, you're just more of who you are, more refined in delivering who you already were. Well, I have a little more control over, yeah. I mean, I'm not going to lie, I still, like having just had asked you that final question, I kind of ummed and out about whether I should. Um, I still feel a little, I feel a bit weird, you know. Uh, I've already been to the gym this morning, but maybe I need to go and do something else to shake my jelly bean jar a little yes. bit, eh? yep, Absolutely. <laughs> Go look after yourself. I will. Thank you so much. I'm going to take your photo real quick, okay? Okay. Unreal. (laughs) That was Tani Schultz. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. I hope you got a lot out of it. I hope you managed to find some things in that chat that you can work into your own day. Um, If it did bring anything up for you, please, please give Lifeline a call on 13 11 14 if you're in Australia or if you're outside of Australia or it's it's not super emergency make sure you see your 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 GP and just uh, go and have a chat because you've got to go and work these things out you've got to go figure it out it's you can't ignore the splinter in your foot you've got to go get it figured out before it starts becoming septic <laughs> um, a massive thanks to everybody this week who's on the Facebook group always love to drop in and see what's happening in there a uh, great community of people there if you'd like to join in osha.is slash FB group it's uh, really really lovely seeing what's happening there in the Facebook group I'd love to have you as a part of it again if you want to come and see the show Melbourne December 13th if there are any tickets left available osherginsburg.com is where you'll find them and February 8th in Brisbane at the Powerhouse Theatre I cannot wait 
to bring the show to you. Thank you so much to the people that made this show with me today. Andy Ma, my diligent, extraordinary, tireless, brilliant and gatekeeper audio producer, Andy Ma. Rachel Barrett, the ruler and runner of my entire life. I could not do this show or indeed my life without you, Rachel. And Mike Mills, the extraordinary musician that makes all the music for this and indeed the live show that you can come to see. Thank you so much for listening to the show. Thank you, Tani, for being on the show. I can't wait to talk to you next week. Have a fantastic week, whatever it is that you're doing. Let me know how you go. Let me know with how you define yourself. I'm fascinated to hear what you come up with. Um, I'll be the guy... I'm I'm the kind of guy that does squats in the morning. I'm the kind of guy that puts a podcast out every Monday. I'm the kind of guy that tries to get eight hours sleep. And I'm the kind of guy that's going to see you next week. Until then, sleep well and dream of beautiful things. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.